Morning, everyone. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would be with each of us as we gather to focus on you, to worship you, and to come together in your name. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart,
This next song um, I wrote pretty recently, um, and I would say it's about hope. It uh, has some psalms in it. Some of the lyrics are from the psalms. Psalm 8 that Brian preached on last week. So I pray that it brings you a little hope in this time. Spring 
salvation I will lift your name and pray Son, I will not need you The Lord will light my days I will call you my salvation I will lift your name and pray Son, I will not need you The Lord will light my Hey guys, uh, hopefully you have your Bibles and uh, they're open up to Psalm 16. We're going to jump into some teaching right now, so if you want to get ready and we're going to jump in. So uh, we've been in a series that we started a few weeks ago through the Psalms and it's more than just simply a teaching on Sunday morning, which we will provide as we've been doing as far as content, but our real aim is to do the best that we can to equip you with items and utensils and tools so that as you are part of your community, um, that you can grow as a follower of Jesus. And so a couple things for you to just be aware of. Uh, definitely take a look at the um, Sunday worship guide that we have available, calvarysocom forward slash Sunday worship guide. Also on the Sunday worship guide is a companion material that has to do with the Psalms. So this is kind of like a Psalms resource guide. And the big idea behind that Psalms resource guide is to equip you with daily readings in the Psalms so that you on your own, in your own discipleship to Jesus, can be reading along, following along. And then when we get into the teachings on Sunday morning, uh, these would be Psalms that you would have already been somewhat familiar with as you're reading them. But then also, too, there's uh, resources and means to help you, equip you, so that you can get involved in community and develop these daily rhythms and weekly rhythms uh, so that you can follow Jesus uh, within the context that you find yourself right now. So anyways, that being said, we're going to jump into Psalm 16. Before we do, again, I just have to say it, man. I, I miss you guys. I miss being with you, miss seeing you. This is, uh, I'm, I'm sure, been a hard time for many of you as we are going on two and a half months of this. Um, the reality for many people is setting in that we were wired, we are made for community. This is who we are, and until we're able to fully be able to be back in that, um, our hope, our aim is that as you are connected with these small communities that you are surrounded by, um, social, socially distanced as well, that you would be able to equip yourself with language to know how to process grief and loss and pain and hardship and sorrow. And it's one of the reasons why we're going through the Psalms right now is because we really believe that the Psalms provide a really unique means of language and vocabulary for us to really seek God um, in our own discipleship, that we are uh, individually as well as corporately as a body leaning into in these times. So with that, what I want to do right now is I'm going to turn a little bit to the Psalms, to Psalm 16, and then we're going to jump into that. But what I want to do is we will go through every single line of the Psalm itself in just a moment, but I want to basically start with the end of the Psalm, and then we'll basically work our way backwards. And I'll tell you why I'll do that in a moment. So Psalm 16 verse 11 says this, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. So the title of today's message and ongoing messages that we are basically jumping into is, is again, not just simply going through the Psalms, but really praying the Psalms, equipping us with language so that we can pray for specific 
things that we desperately need. Today's uh, psalm title is, or teaching title is, Praying into Joy. And this is where I think the psalmist is taking us. And this is a common theme that you find a lot throughout the psalms, is he talks about our challenges and hardships and life, and yet at the same time recognizing there's a deep longing and desire for him to be someplace else. In the context of this psalm, the someplace else that he wants to be is in the presence of God, where there's joy forevermore. So with that, what we're going to take a look at as we now begin to jump into this is that there's various elements that are oftentimes, um, you, you might call them joy thieves. That's what I'm calling them, are joy thieves. Things that rob or steal or keep joy at a distance from us. In other words, as long as these elements that we'll look at in just a moment are in play and in placement in our lives and uh, usurping control and influence and authority over our thinking and our hearts and our emotions and our feelings, uh, joy will be this elusive reality that we will never really fully grasp. Um, C.S. Lewis described in his book called The Weight of Glory, which I'm going to read a passage in just a moment here, uh, one of his famous quotes is, joy is the serious business of heaven. And his entire book is really all about the subject matter of joy, that God's aim is joy. And that might be a shocking thought for some of you because you have not thought of God in that same context. So if I were to pause and just ask you, how would you define or think about God? Um, another way to put it is, what is your theology when it comes to God? And some of us might be like, I don't even have a theology. I'm not really sure what theology is. Um, every human being, I would make an argument for, has a theology. And all this simply means is your understanding of who God is. So again, you might be a Christian who has been following Jesus for your entire life. You have a theology. You might be an atheist. You have a theology. You might be a skeptic or someone that does not believe, is not even really know, certain of what you believe. You have a theology. Every human being has some theological understanding or what they think God is like. But I wonder if the way that you think about God would also include this construct of God being deeply committed to your joy. Now, that being said, that doesn't mean that God is deeply committed to you doing everything that you want in your life to obtain your desired end of joy. Because oftentimes what we consider joy-filling experiences, God actually says those are things that will actually bring death in the long run. So there's occasions where God actually withholds certain things because what he's really after is our deepest, most profoundest joy. And I want to read another quote from C.S. Lewis. It's a little bit lengthy, so just go ahead and listen to it. Um, hopefully, it'll make some sense to you. This is at the beginning of his book called The Weight of Glory. And if you've never read this book, highly recommend it. I'm sure you can download it somewhere for free um, on the internet, um, or you can pick up a book just like I have right here. So I'm going to read this passage. It's kind of at the beginning. Just listen to it. He says, If you asked 20 good men today what they thought the highest of the virtues, 19 of them would reply, unselfishness. But if you were to ask almost any of the great Christians of old, they would have replied, love. You see what has happened? A negative term has been substituted for a positive. And this is of more than philological importance. The negative idea of unselfishness carries with it the suggestion, not primarily of securing good things for others, but in doing without them for others. As if our abstinence and not their happiness was the, imp it was the important point. I do not think this is a Christian virtue of love. He goes on to say, the New Testament has lots to say about self-denial. 
but not about self-denial as an end in of itself. He says, we are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we might follow Jesus. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. He says, if there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, he says, I submit to you that this is, this is crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is in no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we, this is one of my most favorite quotes of all time, so you're about ready to engage in, in sacred literary territory. So you ready? Here we go. He says this, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord actually finds our desires not too strong, but actually too weak. We are like half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. Then he finishes with this really important line. We are far too easily pleased. There's so much truth to that because that's exactly what I think the psalmist is tapping into is there are these elements in life that we oftentimes give ourselves to hoping that they will squeeze out a little bit of joy for us, but they end up dissatisfying us. They end up leaving us deeply empty. And yet what the psalmist, I think, is praying into, and that I would like to invite you to take a look at the language and vocabulary of the psalmist to make this your own prayer as well, is to ask the bigger question, what does it look like to actually really pray the prayer along with the psalmist into this deep, infinite joy that is offered to us? So with that being said, Thomas Brooks, a Puritan, said something along these lines. He says, it is my work as a Christian to do my best to discover, then he says three things, A, the fullness of Christ, two, the emptiness of creature, of the creature, and then thirdly, the snare of the greatest deceiver. So number one, the fullness of Christ, the emptiness of the creature, and then the snares of the great deceiver. I think those three things are covered actually within this psalm, that it points out the fullness of Jesus. As he says, in your, fullness, in your uh, presence is fullness of joy. It points out the reality of the emptiness of the creature, meaning we are far too easily pleasured and satisfied when we give ourselves an energy that we have over to things that ultimately do not satisfy. And then ultimately the snares of the great deceiver. That There are elements that are at play in the universe and in our lives that are oftentimes putting uh, snares in front of us, traps in front of us to keep us from ultimately entering into this deep joy that God has for us. So with that being said, I want to jump in and basically say our main aim this morning is to really pray into the joy that I think that's offered to us. Number two is to really be aware, to avoid the uh, snares, the, like I mentioned earlier, of these joy thieves, these thieves that are out to uh, steal and to remove joy from our grasp. So what I want to do is I'm going to basically take a look at every single line in the psalm, and I want to break it down into these 
four different joy thieves that I think the psalmist is basically more or less addressing. Um, number one, he addresses the subject of, these are four joy thieves. And again, there's lots of joy thieves you can jump into and think about, but I'm just focusing on the psalm right here, and there's at least four that where I'm going to really focus on. Number one is insecurity. Secondly, insufficiency. Thirdly, he addresses discontentment. Um, fourthly, he addresses this reality of an uncertain future. Like, what does the future hold for me? And is there a place for me? So each one of these uh, items that he addresses, uh, I would also kind of add a, a question that kind of goes along with it. So for example, with insecurity, the bigger question that's underneath the subject matter of insecurity is, will I be okay? Will I be okay? Or is there somebody, is there some means, some way that I can actually be protected in the midst of um, a dangerous environment. Uh, number two, the subject matter of insufficiency is this underlying question. Will I have enough? Is there enough to go around? Or do I have to live with a scarcity mindset? Because there's not enough to go around, I have to frantically obsess over possessing something that I don't currently have right now or holding on to with white knuckle grip on something that I currently possess because it may go away. And then ultimately filters over into how I think about my neighbor, how I think about those that live around me. Because if I live with this construct, this idea that there's not enough to go around, do you think I will become a generous person? In fact, absolutely not. I will be a very stingy person because it plays into this subject matter of insufficiency. Thirdly, discontentment is another question beneath that is, will I be satisfied? Will I ultimately be satisfied with what I get? So if I get something, will it satisfy me forever? And then finally, the question of an uncertain future. And the bigger question beneath this is, will I make it beyond the present? In other words, is there a future for me? Is there a hope for me? So with that, let's jump into each one of these one by one, and then we'll get to the very end. So number one, let's take a look at the subject matter of insecurity. Again, the joy thief of insecurity. If we live under the grip of being consistently, cons uh, constantly uh, in a state of insecurity, that will constantly keep us in a place of finding deep joy. Listen to how Psalmist addresses this. Psalm 16, verse 1 says this, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take my refuge. His, su his suggestion is that, God, you are the protector for me. And if you know anything about the life of David, you know that David was a guy, he wasn't perfect, he was described as a man that had a heart after God, and yet there were several movements throughout David's life where he was, he was on the run. He was running from Saul for at least 10 years, uh, who was the king. David was sort of like his general of his army and kind of like the chief sheriff of town, right? But he went rogue, or at least that was the mindset of Saul. He went rogue. And so therefore, Saul hunted David down trying to kill him. Um, later in David's life, once he secured the throne, uh, there was a revolt within his own kingdom. It happened to do with his own son. Uh, we actually looked at this uh, psalm recently. And David was running for his life again. There's other occasions where, you know, where David was, uh, his sin uh, against Bathsheba and then murdering her husband. David was running for his own, from his own conscience. And uh, he was in the throes of guilt and shame. And David was a guy that understood what it meant to feel a deep sense of insecurity in his life. And yet, these are moments, for example, these little like... Um, uh, how would I describe it? It's like inspired, spirit-inspired moments where the layers of David's calloused heart kind of gets peeled back. We begin to really see what David is ultimately made up of. He's made up of a man that though he's got insecurities, he's choosing to place his confidence in God. That's the phrase, God, you are my refuge. You are the one in whom I take refuge. The second thing 
uh, in terms of a joy thief, is uh, the subject matter of insufficiency. Again, the underlying question is, will I have enough? Listen how David addresses this in verse 2. I will say to the Lord, uh, the word Lord there, if you are following along, you read and you see that all of them are capital letters, capital L-O-R-D, all capital letters. This, uh, anytime you read this in your Bible, it's always a reference to the fact that this is like the covenantal name of God, what you might call Yahweh or Jehovah. Um, but the subject is that this is who this is. This is God. He's saying, Yahweh, you are my Lord. You are my Adonai. You're the one that I submit, I give myself over to. Uh, you are the one that, that holds the reign of my heart, my, the hold, holds the reign of my heart. You're the one that I give the sum total of my life over to. This is what David's suggesting him. And then he goes on to say, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. In other words, what he's suggesting here is that even though he may be in a current status of really not having enough in and of himself. Maybe he's running for his life and he's living out in the desert and he's like living off of you know, dry breadcrumbs and water from, you know, I don't know, from some hidden stream. Um, and this is all that David has. And yet in the midst of David recognizing there's not much that I have, but God, in you, I'm choosing to say that uh, in you I have enough. You are my daily provision. So number one, the subject of insecurity gets addressed. Number two, in verse two, the subject of insufficiency or the joy thief of insufficiency gets addressed. Um, and then number three, the subject of discontentment. And this is verses three through six. And again, the underlying question is, uh, will I be satisfied? And again, this question of, so let's say I get God or let's say I get whatever it is that I'm hoping to get, that job, that promotion, that house, that child, that marriage, what, that relationship, whatever, you fill in the blank, that puppy, right? That sourdough bread that you've been eating constantly, nonstop. Whatever it is that you think that you need, let's say you get it. Uh, how satisfied will you be? And if you're really honest with yourself, just like me, you know that throughout your life there have been these moments where you have uh, sought after something. You've given your energy, your time, your commitment, late nights, you know, looking at Amazon, looking at the you know, bids that are on eBay, and you are giving your heart and your energy over to these things. And at some point you get that thing, and then you realize it, it really doesn't satisfy. That upgrade, that new 2.0 version, that new thing, whatever it was, as sparkly, as shiny, as promising as it seemed to be in that moment, turned out to be just as much of a letdown as the previous iteration or version that you had thought was going to also deliver, but failed as well. But here's what David does, and this is, this is what's amazing. For us, I think, again, when we are asking, grasping for language and vocabulary and how to pray, uh, especially when it comes to the subject matter of joy, listen to what David says. Verse 3, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom are all my delight. So David is suggesting that, that the people that are followers of Yahweh, those that are part of my, my kin, my community, my, my neighborhood, you know, these people are the ones I find deep, deep delight in. Um, and he goes on to say, verse four, the sorrows of those who run after, other, uh, after another God shall multiply. They drink their offerings of blood and I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So at this particular point, David suggests that in the land, there are all sorts of other people that have given themselves over to other entities or deities. Uh, we might use the language of, of idolatry. 
Um, and again, just because we live in a modern society whereby people aren't like bending down and bowing and casting you know, flowers in front of some sort of a golden statue, don't assume for an instant that uh, idolatry doesn't exist. It totally exists. There are false godlike influences in our culture all around us. And the question is, what are those influences that we have given ourselves over to? It's very likely that David might be referencing people that are living in the land of Israel during the time that claimed with their lips to follow Yahweh, but with their actions, they're actually devoted to the pagan deities and entities of the land. And that's very possible for us. That's one of the things that I've been saying all along with regard to uh, the pandemic that we find ourselves in the middle of, is that this has been a testing for us as followers of Jesus. And I think within that moment of shaking, where our lives have been shaken, um, the question of what is the foundation of my life? And what have I built upon? What are the things that I've given myself over to? What are the elements that I've trusted in? And how are they sustaining me in this moment right now? And if you're honest, you realize that anything and everything that for the most part uh, that we have placed our confidence in has, has failed us. Um, we recently had some constant issues with our internet. And you know, it's like almost like the last ditch Thing that we have in our house of some degree of sanity. It's like even that is unstable, right? You guys know what I'm talking about. The point that I make is this, is David recognizes that there are things in our life, in our land, in our world, in our neighborhoods, in our environment that uh, might shine, might sparkle, might claim life, might claim hope, might claim to give us some degree of sanity or comfort, but in the long run, they will fail us. And when we make sacrifices to those things, and though we might not be chopping the head off of an animal um, and offering blood on an altar to a little deity, we are, in many cases, paying large dividends of money and time and energy and blood, sweat, and tears, and maybe in some cases even our family in order to obtain some of these things, hoping that they will deliver on their promise of making us fulfilled, and they don't. Here's what David goes on to say. Verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And I think David is communicating right here very clearly is that, God, you are the one that is ultimately my, my portion. You're my inheritance. You're the one. Now, there's some discussion as to whether or not even David even wrote this. Some have suggested that maybe this was written by a, a, a priest that was at a later date, kind of writing as a, within the pseudonym of David. Um, I'm not going to go down that path right now, but the suggestion is, if that is the case, uh, the, the Levites, it's an interesting theory, but the Levites, they didn't have land. They weren't given an actual portion of land. So what the psalmist, if that theory is true, what he's basically saying is that I don't, have, I don't have land. I don't have a house. I don't own, you know, a farm and all of these goods that come along with that. I don't have this nice house in the middle of San Luis Obispo on, you know, a white gated community. I don't have all that. But what he's suggesting is that God, in you, I have everything. In you, I'm deeply satisfied. In you, all my discontentment is turned inside out. And turned upside down on its head because in you I have everything. And then lastly, what I want to take a look at is the subject of an uncertain future. Because, again, each one of these joy thieves are elements that will keep us at arm's length of really ever entering into deep joy. Deeply joyful people 
um, rarely are crippled by insecurity or insufficiency or discontentment and or this constant ongoing belief of an uncertain future. It doesn't mean that joy-filled people are perfect. They're not. We are people that are deeply seeking. And again, I long for joy just like anybody else. And yet along this path, there are moments where I find myself like David, dealing with degrees of insecurity and insufficiency and discontentment and questions about my future. But again, uh, as I think it was Dallas Willard described, that discipleship, a real disciple, is kind of like, uh, I think he used the analogy of like a, um, like a compass. You drop a compass and it bounces across the floor and immediately after you pick it up, the thing immediately goes back pointing to due north. Um, that's what a follower of Jesus is is that it doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean that we're always pointing due north, but it does mean that we, as we fall, as we stumble, as we find ourselves in those moments, sometimes in the grip of insecurities or loss or anxieties or pain, at some point our hearts are reoriented back to due north, towards the heart of God. And listen to how he finishes this uh, segment here, and I'm, I'm done. Uh, verse seven, he says, uh, I bless the Lord. I uh, bless Yahweh, who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, and I shall not be shaken. He's making this choice. Um, God, I, in the midst of my pain, my grief, my loss, and confusion, and anxieties, I'm choosing to put you in front of me. You know that you have control over how you respond to circumstances, uh, that's one of the crazy realities that we're in the midst of right now. Nobody has control over this pandemic. You do have control over how you respond to this pandemic. We're not always going to respond perfectly. We're not always going to respond in ways that lead to life and flourishing and hope and, and healthy uh, mental stability. But we do have choices to say, I will put God before me or I will put you know, some new thing in front of me that promises to give me some immediate sense of satisfaction, but ultimately will never satisfy. And what the psalmist is suggesting, I'm putting the Lord before me. He goes on to say verse 9, Therefore, my heart is glad. He basically says four things. This one he says, My heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Therefore, you will not abandon my soul to hell or the grave or let your holy one see corruption. So number one, he describes the heart. He says, my heart is glad. Uh, it's the uh, Hebrew would love my heart. Uh, then he goes on to say my whole being, which is another interesting word because some of your translations might actually use the word uh, my glory. And it's exactly what the word is, the word uh, kavod. He's saying my glory. Um, all human beings, we have glory. Um, and some of us choose to use that glory to make much of ourselves, right? We, we, we call that in modern vernaculars, continual selfies of just trying to glorify ourselves. But at the end of the day, so I'm, I'm not judging you if you take selfies, it's fine. But the point of the matter is, back on track, is that when we use our glory as a means to make much of ourselves, as opposed to using our glory to make much of the one that gave us that glory in the first place, then it's a distortion of our purpose of life and it will ultimately lead to like a black hole existence as opposed to a life-giving, garden-like existence. Then he goes on to say, my flesh dwells secure. Then he goes on to say in verse 10 again, you will not abandon my soul in hell or Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. And then he finishes with this verse, verse 11, again, which we started. You made known to me the path of life, and in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore.
Um, this psalm is really interesting because it actually plays into the uh, message of the New Testament. So, for example, in the book of Acts, chapter 2, when the church began to kind of move forth and these were people that were radically transformed by this event of Jesus' resurrection. And so there's all these questions that are being asked, like, what is this? What's happening? What's taking place? And um, there is a unique power that's come upon the people of God, this Jesus movement that's beginning to spread. And Peter, one of the early church leaders, stands up, and this is what he says. I'll just read a brief portion of it. Uh, Chapter 2, verse uh, 22 in the book of Acts, it says, Peter then said, men of Israel, hear these words of mine, Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, He says, he was a man attested by God. Uh, with mighty works and wonders and signs, this Jesus was crucified, killed by the hands of lawless men, yet God raised him, the resurrection. And then he goes on to say, verse 25, for David says concerning him, then he quotes basically the latter half of Psalm 16. And his whole point is to, I really, I believe is to really kind of point out the reality that, that there is hope in this life, even in the midst of a trouble-filled challenged, sorrowful, grieving, pain-filled existence that's deeply linked to joy. Uh, The New Testament believers anchored their life in this. This is why the movement spread is because they became this unstoppable community. Because the question is, how do you stop a community of people that are deeply empowered by this narrative that death Pain, sorrow does not have the final end. Life, after pain, sorrow, death has the ultimate end because of Jesus. It becomes an unstoppable movement. And it becomes a movement that even in spite of deep sorrow and pain, joy becomes what defines it. And I'll finish with this quote. Uh, Tim Keller says this in uh, one of his books on the subject matter of Psalms. He says, if God is our greatest good... We gain what, we, what cannot be lost and will only increase infinitely. Thus, we have nothing to fear. His whole point is that when we get God, who in his presence is fullness of joy, we actually gain something that can never be lost. When you gain a new job, that can be lost. When you gain a new house, because you worked really hard to earn that, or you get a new car, or you get new gear, or new whatever, new phone, whatever it is, all of these things are subject to decay, brokenness, and being lost. But when you get God, you can't lose him. Or a better way to think of it, he won't lose you. You belong to him. And because of that, that gives us a deep sense of security. It gives us a deep sense of sufficiency that in Christ, even though I might not have a whole lot, in Christ, I have everything. It gives me a deep sense of contentment that even though my life might be consistently handing me deeply broken and flawed things, that in Jesus, I have been given a portion. And that even though I might at moments question, what does my future look like? We have this deep hope. Because Jesus rose again from the dead, we also share in that hope of Jesus. So my hope, my hope for you is that as you close out this time here now, uh, maybe take a moment to sit with your family or people that you are socially distancing with and just take a moment to pray. Go through some of the questions that are part of the Sunday Worship Guide and just ask God. Pray into joy. Use the language, this inspired, spirit-breathed language of the psalmist to step into joy, to be aware of, to combat those Joy Thieves.
And I'm praying, my, I'm praying for you, the, God's best goodness and power and grace over you. So that being said, grace, mercy, and peace from the triune God is yours. Thanks for tuning in.
worshiping with us. I pray that you have a great week and uh, hopefully we'll see you next week.